Hey, fanboy nation. This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching. Fanboy. 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 A fanboy, etc. Fanboy nation. God, I assume Tom. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ryan Brookhart, who's the director of Two Ways to Go West, a, a small indie film with a cast of only six people that's coming out July 17th. Ryan, how are you today? Hi, RC. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, still in lockdown in Los Angeles, but I'm managing with my PlayStation and everything else. <laughs> you know, our lockdown's a lot easier than everybody else's here in California, especially because, uh, you know, we have Netflix, we have Amazon, we have Hulu, Apple Plus, whatever, God knows whatever else we have, every other option. And your movie's coming out on VOD this weekend. Uh, it's a cast of six people, and it follows three friends, one who is a... Uh, recovering drug addict that uh, falls back into his old habits. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this was, this was kind of described as the um, anti hangover, but this is a really <laughs> heavy film, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it is. Yeah, I, I heard someone say that in some review and uh, it, was, it made me kind of laugh because, you know, Someone else had mentioned, so is this is this more like The Hangover or is this more like Leaving Las Vegas? And I said, well, it, they're, I guess they're both in the same neighborhood. They're sort of adjacent to each other. So you could kind of look across the street and see, I think, some real camaraderie that, that breaks through. And maybe it starts in the film and then breaks through and then obviously things devolve and then I won't give away the ending. Uh, you know, that maybe you could say, oh, there's some hangover elements to that. Uh, it's not as, uh, I think, uh, essentially bleak, uh, but, you know, honest as it leaving Las Vegas. Um, and I really tried to sort of, you know, disavow my, my brain from any of those films because I didn't want to approach it from the standpoint of like, well, what are kind of the, you know, codified elements of, you know, movies like this and just approach it, you know, from my particular point of view, which wasn't even about addiction. It was really about uh, disconnection and the fact that we live in a culture that is so, uh, a connected, but be utterly disconnected uh, from you know each other from a real emotional place. And of course, right now with COVID nineteen and with being locked down, you know this is even a bigger problem. So this sort of zeitgeist of not being able to, you know, really have genuine human connection conversations with each other is a, is a real problem. And that's what I hopefully hopefully people take part of that away from the story. Well, you were able to convey that, but I mean, it's so difficult because you have these three childhood friends celebrating someone's, uh, you know, a bachelor party. And then one of them is, well, we find out two of them are engaged. And then one of them, him and his fiance have secrets that we would have never assumed to be those secrets. And then the other one is, you know, kind of a Lothario, shall we put it in a polite way? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can put it that way for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah it was... Uh, it was funny because uh, I think you're talking about the character of uh, Shane. Right. Shane and, is more uh, the Lothario, and then Gavin and Addie have their secrets. Exactly. And Shane, to me, you know, I, uh, uh, Drew Kenny, the, the actor, uh, who's so talented, um, there were – one of the things that I said to him early on was, you know, you look like you could be a politician. And I really want – sort of like I kept calling him a young Mike Pence. And I, I don't mean any political affiliation when I say that. Just there was like a this sort of element of like this sort of coiled, you know, you know, fake smile thing that I wanted him to do that he really just nailed. And I said, look, you're, uh, 
your uh, suit, your tie, your smile, these are all like, you know, uh, disguises. And there's this really kind of, you know, like you say, Lothario part of you that, that is just under the surface. And we don't really find that out uh, until late in the film. But yeah, I, I really thought he, he nailed that. Well, he did a great job with it. Uh, you know, the, the character of Marty still trying to keep everybody together and trying to get Gavin to sign the poster for his son, I thought was a, was a nice little element to it as well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I thought of Polly, uh, Paul, Paul Gennaro, uh, who plays Marty. I thought of him as the warm center of their past childhood. You know, we don't all have them, unfortunately, but a lot of us have friends that, you know, still keep that fire burning, the childhood fire burning. And when I initially saw the script, I said, my God, he, he's the guy that is, you know, on one level you could say, well, I don't, I don't relate to him at all, but on another level you really want to relate to him. And, uh, the, so one of the things that I did was uh, look through the script and say, you know, the board game that is that the kids create when they're when they're young, which makes an appearance in the film. I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. Uh, let's have it look like a real board game that a bunch of kids put together. So I I constructed this thing and I didn't show anybody until the day of that scene, those scenes. And the same thing with the movie poster. It wasn't actually in the script initially. But I thought, wouldn't it be cool, because my other job is doing key art for films, to create this ridiculous movie poster, <laughs> you know, ridiculous TV series or something, and then have it that only Paulie has seen this in the, on set. So when he presents it to, uh, to Gavin and to Shane, they have, in real life, they have not seen it before. So I wanted their reactions to be completely honest. And yeah, he's... He's doing these things that on one level you'd say, oh, my gosh, dude, that's so cringeworthy. Right. But it comes from such a pure place that you can't help but, like, relate to it on some level. Well, I thought Marty's character was the one that was initially going to be the scumbag. I thought he was going to be more of the yeah. Lothario and Womanizer, and then we see how it <laughs> evolves. And it's, no, it's really the uh, the old-school mentality of Satan being, uh, you know, the prettiest of the angels. That's why there's two, you know, that's why there's two cherubim guarding the gates of of, um, of Eden. So if he seduces one, the other one could kill him. It has that element to it. I love that. I, I, I think that's, uh, th- that is perfect. I'm going to steal what you just said <laughs> and I'll call it my own, but no, I, it, it's, it's very true. And it's funny for me. Uh, this is my second uh, official. I just own other movies I've done, but <laughs> my second official directorial film, I did a movie called trace before this. And, I wrote that one, but in both these films and specifically in two ways, it was always so impressive to me that James, uh, Liddell, who wrote and is in the film, he would make a left turn in terms of, you know, character motivations. And I thought, gosh, let's really lean into that. That's great because it's just like you say, you, you look at these people and you say, okay, well, there's, you know, there's Marty and he's got the beard and he's wants the strippers, but really he's the, uh, he's the family man. And, you know, it makes you hopefully participate in the revelations that happen in the film as a viewer. That's kind of my hope. You know, we're going in saying, oh, I know what this is. I know who these people are. And then we kind of subtly pull the rug out from under you. Right. And the the majority of the film, like 90% of the film, takes place in their hotel suite between the three friends until, of course, you know, 
the surprise with Addy uh, comes into play. Um, right. You know, is it more difficult when you have a limited location uh, setting like that, you know, where 90% of the film takes place in just this one room? It can be. It could be liberating when you say, this is the sandbox. Now let's find every conceivable corner of that sandbox that can inhabit a different idea in the story. Uh, you know, as, as limited as the set is, uh, I think there's the bathroom, the bedroom, the kitchen, and then the sort of the, the main area. Uh, we did shoot a lot of angles. <laughs> right. And I didn't want this film to be hyperactive. I didn't want it to be overshot. But, you know, it definitely doesn't lend itself to being, you know, just these long static shots. I did think the film, uh, well, I should say, I think the script uh, definitely had a, a more of a stage uh, feel to it. And I didn't want to completely, you know, disregard that because I thought there were moments that would be beautifully uh, theatrical-like. Uh, you sort of let the three guys play out and then you get to sort of choose who you want to look at. Um, some of the more intimate moments like uh, the Gavin's breakdown, I wanted to become you know, kind of like a uh, slightly more fly on the wall and push in, push in until we got really intimate. So you go from the sort of like wide, dispassionate look to something deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's because I wanted some of that dialogue to be more like a confession to themselves as right. opposed to just saying these things out, uh, you know, out loud, because that also can come off very theatrical. So, you know, in a way, it creates a lot more freedom when you say this is what I have to work with. Uh, as opposed to being on a set where, um, like the film, I, the previous film, I, I had, I think, one, two, three, four, there were at least six different dedicated sets. And as great as that is, even with a, you know, when you have a limited time, a limited budget, uh, uh, you're going, I just, at the end of the day, you're going, I should have shot, I should have shot the scene this way. I should have added that thing that way. Whereas with a smaller set, you're going, okay. I'm going to squeeze everything I can out of this. And I think we did. Well, you guys did a great job with it. I'm really impressed, especially with, with such a limited cast and budget. Uh, James thank Liddell, you. Well, thank you for making it and making it worthwhile watching because sometimes some indie films, you know, try to be more than they are, and that becomes mm -hmm. disheartening after a while. It uh, does, yeah. You know, with uh, James Liddell be, playing Gavin, the main character, and being the writer of the film – is there a bit of a push-pull in this? Because, yes, you're the director that's hired on to make the film, but he's the one that put the words to the page, and he's the star of it. So that could also create some sort of tension between director and star because he remembers what he wrote versus what's coming across. Sure, it's a terrific question. Um, I would just say it should have been very difficult. <laughs> but the thing is, is that James and I, I uh, have said this quite often. We have like a hive mind. Uh, so much of the stuff that he's thinking, I'm thinking as well. And it became kind of a, a joke on set where I'd look over to him and I'd say, you know, I think if we did that thing and then maybe, maybe did it this way and, so, and that instead of that way, and he's going, yeah, yeah, we could do this other thing. And my DP would go, what are you saying? <laughs> I don't know what the thing is. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. So... <laughs> James explained the shot that we just talked about. You know, people on, on the set are shaking their heads going, I don't know what they just said. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, one of the things that I said to James early on was, look, I love the story. I understand the story. 
I know from the angle you're talking about, I understand that angle specifically about um, a literal addiction. Uh, I was going through my own issues about sort of being disconnected from a specific friend, uh, which I think relates kind of to what I was saying before, sort of the zeitgeist of like social media and the idea that you can, you know, just ghost somebody or you can, you know, the relationship that you think you have with them is very different than the one that you're seeing them present online. Mm-hmm. So I was bringing that part of it. And I said, look, from that standpoint, I'm going to probably interject a few things here and there. If they don't work, we won't use them. Uh, and he was, all of the actors were so down to play with that. And my key thing was, it should never cross the line over the words. If we can enhance something, especially considering, like you said, we're, you know, we're dealing with a limited budget, uh, a limited space, but I want to be expansive in, at least in its emotional sense or its color palette or whatever. So a few times, uh, so like in like the, the the board game sequence that was sort of opened up because I would throw these guys improv uh, moments. I'd say, okay, I'm going to tell you to do something, just do it, and they would, you know they would go there. Uh, the the poster thing was more like I'm going to present the poster and I want your reactions to it, and I want to film that you know you inhabit those characters. Um, so stuff like that, and then there were a couple other instances where I believe essentially James wrote the scenes. That, that I, I was like, look, I really want there to be something that we show of the relationship between you and Addy outside of all of this that may not even necessarily be totally real, but in the way we project ideas about people that we love. Because, you know, so much of this stuff, I think, comes back to the idea that we project our values on the things we find attractive. And that sometimes can even be a memory. Um, and so, you know, Levi uh, Tran, who's you know, usually an action, you know, uh, star. She's such a great actor, but, she, you know, she's, just, she's on MacGyver right. doing a lot of her own stunts and stuff. But here she, you know, she can have it such a warm place. And I would say to her, look, there are a couple real, real moments for sure. But the memories or the flashbacks where you're in bed with, with Gavin, let's play them a little loose because maybe they're not actually real. Maybe it's a, a deceptive memory. Mm-hmm. And, that was stuff that wasn't actually, again, in the initial script, but it was stuff that James said, yes, that's right, let's do that, let's put that in. And I just watched the film this morning again. I thought, yeah, that stuff really plays. I think it, it underlines some of the sadness, but also gives us some hope in a different way. Right, and you don't know if it's, a, if it's an actual memory or if it's one based on his drug-induced uh, you know, uh, reaction. I'll tell you something funny about that, too. Uh, RC, I, watching it today... I actually, uh, I, I started questioning it more and I directed the film, <laughs> but I was going, gee, I actually now don't believe those moments really happened, but that made me more excited about it because the way, you know, we, we, we cut this thing together and then ultimately the way it was finally cut, uh, I think really kind of suggests that these are unreliable memories. Right. And with everything that's going on, you know, you started off as a movie poster designer to transition from making the poster for the film to making a film. Like, how did that come about for you? You know, it's crazier than that. Uh, I actually started as a writer, and then I, uh, at a pretty young age, I was the editor-in-chief of an art magazine called Provocateur. And I was way, way young for that, probably too young to be doing that. And I followed up with another 
magazine, sort of a toy entertainment magazine. So those things led me into uh, working for Full Moon Entertainment, uh, Charlie Band, Puppet Master, all that stuff, who I to this day still work with. Um, so those things sort of pushed me in that direction. My goal was always to make films. And I said, well, I'll find any, any foot I can use of my two feet. <laughs> I know one that gets me through that door. I'm going to use it. And it so happened that uh, key art was something, to this day, I love doing it. Um, I don't know how many hundreds of pieces of art I've done. But it allowed me to develop uh, a lot of relationships. And um, I already had a lot of friends in the industry as directors, uh, some pretty big directors, too, uh, that would, you know, let me go on set. And, I, of course, I was constantly writing scripts, and I was really excited about it. And they said, but you're the, you're the key art guy. That's what you do. And I said, well, yeah, but that's not necessarily what I want to do full time. Um, and I think it was about, I'm going to drop a name. So just tell me to, <laughs> Hey, feel free. Just, okay. So I had written this, uh, a, a short story called trace and, uh, trace was probably, I think I've written the treatment when I was like, like 16 years old, literally that long ago. Uh, and many years later when I was doing my, uh, art magazine, I got a phone call from a publicist who said, oh, Bill Blatty, William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist, which is probably my favorite film, uh, he is uh, allowing there to be some phone interviews for his new book, which I think was called uh, De- uh, Demons One, Exorcist Zero. It was like a, a comedic take on Hollywood. Mm. And I said, I will do anything to get an interview with Bill Blatty. And I wrote this impassioned letter, and I said, I'm writing, I do this magazine, et cetera, et cetera. And I got an invite up to his house. So I got to meet him and his wife and his two sons. Uh, one has passed, tragically, uh, not too long ago. And Bill and I struck up a bit of a friendship. And over that period of time, I, you know, I was ex- talking about Trace, and he ultimately made a short film, saying, well, you know what, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it this way. I'll make a short because he said, you know, just explore this. You, know, you never know how to... I said, well, I'm not a director. He said, well, you clearly have a lot of passion for it. So I did a short, and it just sort of floated out there. We took it to Comic-Con one year, and that short became my ultimate final foot all the way to the door, and that's what allowed me to direct my first film. So it's a strange trajectory of taking my aspirations as a writer into the world of like magazines uh, and then through all that and, you know, gathering a lot of different friends and disparate, but really vital parts of making a film, making a short. And then through those connections, I end up here. So it's like, it's a very, there's no, the trajectory is so weird. And from and, a risque uh, magazine, no less to a children's magazine, to never make well, films. you know that's funny. <laughs> Risque. Well, yeah, I, it is. It is in some ways. You know, it's. It, it, I feel like provocateur, even to this day, and maybe more so, is kind of a Rorschach test for people, uh, because some people see it in a, a very specific uh, sexual light, and some people, I think, if they actually read the articles, I, I mean, I got. I don't know where you'd find them now, but. Uh, will say, my gosh, it doesn't read like a, a risque magazine. It reads more like a sort of pseudo-political screed or something. 
Um, it's just a very odd thing. Yeah. But then the, yeah, the children's magazine, that was me saying I wanted to do a, an otaku magazine in America. So I thought Go Figure sounded strangely like broken English or something. And I wanted to do something that was really artistic and also leaned into the entertainment side of, of toy collecting. And that also, I, a lot of people say, Oh, is that a kid's magazine? I said, well, not really. Uh, I mean, it doesn't say anything terribly adult in the sense that there's no content that would be risque. But I, I, it's funny. I, I look back at these things now and I say, I'm not really sure what genre I'm, I was working in. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's made for some interesting experiences that you could put into your own autobiography. Oh, my gosh. I could tell you stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, being in L.A. right now, it seems everything's closed production-wise. Um, is there anything that you can work on or that you are working on that you could talk to us about? Sure. Uh, I finished a, uh, I think basically the final draft for the trace sequel called trace the origin. Uh, I've also finished uh, two other scripts. Um, and, uh, you know, strange because we're not, maybe it's not strange. I take that back. It's because of all the, uh, the lockdowns, because people are sort of stuck, um, they're watching more and more streaming stuff. And one of the things I do is key art. So I've been incredibly busy doing, uh, you know, uh, art campaigns for various films. So I've been busy doing that as well. I would say that mostly I'm, I'm doing that and I'm in, let's say, pre-pre-production on, on a couple projects. Well, that's fantastic. Oh, and, I'm, and I'm playing lots of video games. I finished <laughs> Last of Us 2. Uh, getting ready to play a couple other games. <laughs> right. uh, Everything we're doing, right? And you've already put in your order for your PS5, I can tell. Well, I'm just going to find one. <laughs> if I have to build it myself, I will do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they're going to make actually twice as many. That's what I heard. Oh, wow. And before yeah. I let you go, you got to work with Catherine Narducci, who was, you know, in The Irishman. She was in uh, Bad Education. She was in A Bronx Tale. What was it like bringing her in uh, for the film as well? She was terrific. Uh, she, you know, Cat uh, is exactly the person that you see on, on TV or in the movies. She is incredibly authentic. Um, the diner scene that we did with her, uh, which is it's actually, it's a longer scene, and I kind of regret the fact that we had to cut it down for time, but uh, it plays out a little more languidly, which I, I, I kind of liked. But anyway, I, I mean, I love her scene in the film anyway. But yeah, she's very uh, she's very authentic. Again, she loved the script a lot. She is very good friends with Paul Gennaro, who's in the film. And so, you know, it's one of those things that, hey, could you send this to her maybe? And so she came baked into the project even before I signed on. Uh, you know, same thing with, you know, Levy, Levy knew James and knew Drew and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these scenes sort of fell in place. The sets were things that I was associated with through another friend of mine. I mean, you see how these things go. So it's like an art game comedy where, you know, you make the, the, the tables, I'll get the curtains, you know, all that sort of thing. I'm loving it. 90% man. of the people are not going to get that reference. But <laughs> go. I, I, I got the our gang uh, Little Rascals reference for people that are uh, less familiar with the original name. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but they're probably familiar with like the 1990s version, not the original 1930s, unfortunately. 
Exactly. But at least we said that because if I said spanky, that could be hashtag something pornographic and we don't want to go there. Exactly. You know, people get weird about certain things, especially right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh, boy, is that true. Uh, Ryan, your your movie uh, Two Ways to Go West is out this Friday, July 17th. Um, I'm going to leave you with, with this. I got money to burn on one film this weekend. Why is this the one I need to watch? I think this is a film that speaks to where we are right now. It's as, as much as it's about drug addiction, it's also about uh, human connection. And any film that really is very sincere, which also can make it good, I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I'm not going to be that kind of person. But any film that I believe is this sincere transcends its own genre. And you can say that about the best of films or the most interesting of films. And I think to spend an hour and 20 minutes with these people ultimately is a very rewarding experience. So that's what I would say. Fantastic, man. And if we want to connect with you on social media, where do we look? Right now, you can go to, uh, uh, I, I just sort of just reinvigorated my social media. So Ryan Brookhart uh, is on, on Facebook, and that's open. And you can also, on Instagram, it's Ryan's Corners with a Z at the end. So Ryan's Corners with a Z. So um, uh, R-Y-A-N-Z or R-Y-A-N-S and then Z at the end of Corners. I'm going to tell you right now, because if I screw that up, I'll be the silliest person alive. It is. <laughs> As I open my uh, as I open my own social media, it is uh, uh, Ryan's corner. So Ryan's R Y R Y A N S corners with a Z. Okay, perfect. Ryan Brookhart, thank you so much for talking to us. Artist, writer, uh, provocateur uh, in a sense at one point <laughs> in time. Toy collector, <laughs> <Boy> collector gamer. <laughs> yeah, gamer. We need your own movie about your your life, man. man. Yes, a modern renaissance man. I appreciate it. Hey, and I'm going to go follow you. Oh, thank you so uh, much. And regale uh, in in this wonderful interview. Thank you so much, RC. It was really great. Thank Uh, you for the support, man. Oh, pleasure was mine. Please keep in touch and let me know when the sequel comes out so we can review that one as well. Absolutely. Thank you, man. All right. Take care, Ryan.